It's 1947, and a 17-year-old Philadelphia girl sends a telegram from a train station that reads simply, Got married, leaving town, will not be back. Don't worry, babe. But Babe, also known as Beverly, isn't seeing anyone, leading her family to believe that the telegram isn't from her. What follows is the 76-year mystery of what happened to Beverly Sharpman and one mother's quest to bring her daughter home. This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by guest reader Susan Bennett. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. So, Vanessa, we're on episode 18, and I just wanted to check in with you because, you know, true crime is not your typical genre. And um, how are you doing with all the things we've been talking about lately? I'm learning a lot. A lot of things I don't necessarily know if I need to know, but I know them now. And I guess I am kind of happy about learning some of it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like our last few episodes were pretty brutal and graphic. I mean, we recently covered missing white woman syndrome, and there was like a lot of brutality in those cases. That was not just what was done to women, but also like the way the media ignored them. Right. And I, d- I guess I wasn't as aware of either of those situations. I did not know. Like I knew people were murdery, but I didn't know like what extent they went to with the grossness of that. And I knew that like certain news stories got ignored. But again, I, I wasn't, I don't think anyone is really aware of like how vastly different one woman can, like the attention one woman gets in the media is compared to another. Like you think it's all pretty much, it should be all, you know, somewhat even. Right. And like we also recently covered Eklutna Annie and that's one of the most horrifying serial killer cases that I know about. And we also did the Leslie sisters, which on the surface seemed like pretty cut and dry, but then we got into like the actual details from their their file, like with the underwear and yeah, it's been a lot. It has been a lot. And just like with the Leslie sisters, just how tragic it is for the parents to lose two kids at once. Like all of that. It's just like, I think it's just things we don't think about. We know things happen, but we don't really know like the depth of what they happen to. Or I, I don't anyway. Maybe there's a few other like listeners that are like me and don't aren't completely aware of everything and might find some of these things shocking as well. Yeah. So what we're talking about today and the, the reason I was leading in with that is, is something that actually happens like more frequently. You know, we've done a lot of these stories like where there are perpetrators attached to them. And we've been talking about a lot that are just like connected to murder. Mm -hmm. But murder is only one of the ways that people go missing. And there are a lot of other ways that are more common. And they're often harder to tell in particularly podcast format, because a lot of true crime is like, where is the killer in the story? Right. So we're telling one of those quieter stories today, one of the stories that happens every day. Let's begin. It's 7.30 p.m. on September 11th, 1947, and Nettie Sharpman and her husband Samuel are home when there's a knock on the door. When they answer, it's a delivery for a telegram that reads, Got married, leaving town, will not be back, don't worry, babe. And babe's their daughter? Yeah, so Babe is the Sharpman's nickname for Beverly, who is their 17-year-old daughter. And this news that they receive that night completely transforms the rest of their lives. 
Beverly was born August 1931, and before anyone who knows this story disagrees with me and says she was 16 and born in December, I am aware that some of the records state that, but the August birth date seems more likely. Anyway, Beverly was born August 1931 to Samuel Sharpman, who is listed in the census records as being born in Poland, though elsewhere it says Russia, and Nettie Shulman, who is also born in Russia. Samuel, Nettie, Beverly, and Beverly's older brother, Bernard, and Beverly's maternal grandmother lived in western Philadelphia on Viola Street, in a neighborhood that was largely populated by other working-class, primarily Jewish immigrants from Russia and Poland. There's not much information about Beverly's life before she went missing, but in the summer of 1947, she was working at Trilling and Montague, which was basically a company that sold various household electronics and appliances, and from my understanding, did radio distribution and held some patents. Okay. She works there. Yeah. On September 10th, Beverly told her mother, Nettie, that she had something to tell her. Later, Nettie would say that the two of them were pals and that wherever she went, Beverly would come with her, indicating that they had, from Nettie's point of view, a close relationship. Okay. So she... What day did she say that she was going to tell her something? September 10th. And then what day did her parents get the letter? September 11th. Okay. So she, did she ever tell her mom the thing she was going to tell her, or is that what was in the telegram? Well, Nettie thought the best course of action was to not pressure her daughter about what she needed to tell her, and that she was going to go make some tea for the two of them, and that when she came back, they could settle in and talk about whatever was on Beverly's mind. Okay. By the time Nettie got back with the tea, it seemed that Beverly had reconsidered and decided to go to bed without revealing whatever it was that she wanted to say. Okay. The next day, September 11th, seemed to be a fairly busy one. Beverly was heading into her senior year at Overbrook High School and needed to go there to register for classes. Overbrook is about two miles away from her house, and that afternoon she said that she had to go to work at Trilling and Montague, which is in the opposite direction. So when she returned from registering for classes about at around 11.30 a.m., it didn't seem unusual when Beverly said that she wanted to go to her room to get some rest. Now, while Beverly was doing that, Nettie had some shopping to do, so she left the house. Okay. While Nettie was shopping, she thought her daughter was doing exactly as she claimed, getting some rest and then heading to work. Instead, what was actually happening is it seemed that Beverly packed up some clothes, only enough to fill a single suitcase, and left. The next and last time Nettie hears from her daughter is that single telegram sent from the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Station, which was not far from where Beverly worked. Okay, so do we think that the thing that she was going to tell her mom was what was in that note yeah like what exactly was beverly planning on telling her mom right that night? so had she met a boy and didn't tell her was she running off to get married or was she just running away well so here's some some thoughts so the telegram is the only solid clue that the sharpman family has in fact i don't know if they even realized that she was missing until this telegram arrives and again it reads got married Leaving town, will not be back, don't worry, babe. How many hours between when they saw her and that telegram coming in? So the telegram comes in at 7.30 at night. She was last seen around noon-ish, so. But do we think from noon to 7.30 and sending the telegram that in that time period she could have gotten married? Or is she, like, 
Did she get married prior to this and hadn't told her mom? I have so many questions. Well, the thing is that the thing that Nettie and the rest of the family members can't get past is that they have no idea who Beverly would be marrying. She wasn't, according to them, seeing any men. And when police questioned her friends, they also said that, to their knowledge, she wasn't seeing a man. The few men and boys in their kind of social circle all seemed to be accounted for. Okay. Also, I'm not sure how it worked then in Pennsylvania, but if she did get married, would there be some sort of, like, marriage certificate filed that the parents could request? Um, Well, the telegram does state that she got married in the past tense, indicating that this is something that already happened. That provides like the first avenue for the investigation. But when police went looking for Beverly and searching for the records, they don't find any marriage certificates under Beverly's name. In fact, even today with our improved access due to digitization of records, there's simply not one for her. And I also want to pause here and say that even now, but particularly back in the 1940s, they really looked at things with like a very heteronormative lens, like she's missing, let's check the boys, right? But did anyone check in on any like missing female friends? And to be clear, I'm not making guesses about Beverly's sexuality, but I will say I think sometimes investigators fall into like information ruts. Right, like, and those information rats prevent them from seeing like other possibilities in the situation. And there was never ev- any like evidence of other possibilities with that. No. Okay, so it's just a a theory. A theory, like, I mean, it's an aside that you know, very often when someone goes missing, right? They're particularly a younger woman. They start looking for like, are there any like men involved in the situation? Right. What so, was the wording on that letter? Did you say I married someone, or she said I married a man? It just says got married. Got married. Okay. So, I mean, and you could just be doing that to throw someone off of, like, who you're running away with. Yeah. Because, like, there are several explanations to this got married situation. One is that she took up a new identity and was able to have documents that allowed her to marry under a different name. Mm -hmm. Two is that she had a marriage in intent, but not legally. Three, that she thought the marriage was going to happen before the telegram reached her family, but then it didn't actually go through. Right. Four is that she lied completely and getting married wasn't in her plan at all. And five, she wasn't the one to send the telegram in the first place. Right. So there's a lot of possibilities. There are. And that last option that she wasn't the one to send it is the one her mother kind of clings to. The idea that the daughter that she loves, the daughter that she felt so close to could be behind any of those other options and left on her own free will isn't something that she was, I think, willing to accept at the time. Now, I think that had you not said that the night before she told her mom she had something to tell her and then never told her that thing, it's making me wonder if it really did come from her. Because like, she she obviously had something to tell her mom and then just decided not to. Right. So that that makes me wonder, like, if, if it wasn't for that part, I'd be, like, very much leaning into that. Somebody else sent it. Yeah, plus, you know, it's signed Babe, which is, like, the pet name of her family. And I don't know how widely used that was, if her friends also called her that or people outside of her family would use that. But that would also mean that the person would have to know that her nickname is 
babe. Right. Yeah. So two things kind of seem like like she was the one sending it. Right. And, you know, clues start to fall into place that suggest she did mean to go. The first is that Beverly withdrew money from her savings account at the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society. Newspapers report that it was about $150, but Namus says specifically that it was $173. And that seems like a relatively low amount, and it is in today's dollars, but I use the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics to calculate the value now, and it's about the same as $2,168. So that's a pretty good amount of money to live on for a little while. It is. And at the time, you would have to give notice of withdrawal. So she gave notice of withdrawal the week before, which would have been like a rush situation, and cited that she needed the funds quickly for an emergency. So that indicates that whatever Beverly was doing on September 11th, she'd planned it in advance. On October 1st, 1947, so several weeks after she disappeared, the first news piece I can find for Beverly appears in the Chicago Tribune. It simply reads, Seek Philadelphia girl. Chicago police yesterday were asked to search for Beverly Sharpman, 17, of Philadelphia, whose mother arrived in the city to help find her. Okay. So even though they have the note from Beverly, they're saying that it still could possibly be a kidnapping. Is that what they're trying to... Or are they just looking at her as a runaway? They're, at this point, it seems to be that they are just looking for information about Beverly being in Chicago. Which is why on October 2nd, the first advertisement appears in the paper. And these are taken out, I think, just by her mother, Nettie. It reads, Beverly Sharpman, mother in Chicago, please call Uncle Sam. And then it lists the phone number for Beverly's maternal uncle, Sam, who lives in Chicago. And that ad runs for three days. So mom's really trying. Yeah, because this is a story of Beverly's disappearance. But it's not just what happened to her or what might have happened to her. It's also the story of how that disappearance shapes her family's life, particularly her mom's life. And so these advertisements... It's month after month, year after year. Nettie places these advertisements like this throughout the United States. Every time she gets a lead, like the one that Beverly may be in Chicago or someone thinks that they saw her in Buffalo, she places one of these notices in the paper. Sometimes they're like wedged between things like people advertising like wallpaper hanging and floor sanding. And sometimes they're in the personal section or sometimes they're under the heading that says missing persons and Beverly's is the only one underneath it. That's so incredibly sad. If Beverly was out there, you would hope that she would just contact her mom and be like, look, I did this on purpose. I'll just know I'm fine, but I'm out living my life, you know? Because if she was aware of these, it would be kind of mean, I think, at this point, not to let her mom know she's okay. Yeah, and you can see the way that Nettie is processing this through the different ad placements. So November 10th, 1947, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, this one sounds much angrier. It says, missing persons, Beverly Sharpman, please contact home. Your silence is unbearable. Love, mother. Or sometimes they sound like they start to understand what could have happened to drive her away. Like August 27th, 1949, it says, Beverly Sharpman, please, babe, call TR7379. We'll keep information confidential and send you money for clothes mother or sometimes it's like really short and precise like november 12th 1949 and it just reads beverly sharpman contact mother followed by their address 
I just, I kind of do believe that if she was out there and she saw these, she probably would contact her. But, but then at the same time, how many young girls are out there just living their lives and looking at like every single ad in every single newspaper? Like, yeah. So she would have had to fi- like, you'd have to find it, find it. And so you'd have to pick up the newspaper on that day, find it, and then also be moved to contact in that moment. I mean, she did say not coming back. Yeah. So one of the things that Nettie does is actually use newspapers as a way to kind of send out this like beacon into the world. And this seems to be the path early in her disappearance and straight through. You see Nettie's ads or you see her cousin writing to the Southern Jewish Weekly in Florida asking them to post about her disappearance. It's like a media strategy of the 1940s. At one point, Nettie Evan takes over Beverly's bedroom and uses that as like her command center. And she reaches out to newspapers and police and the FBI, basically anyone she can think of. That's a lot. That's it's I feel like if, if she wanted to be found, she would have been found by now. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3am the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart let's go yeah and the other thing that Nettie does is every moment she is trying to get like larger stories in the paper and like that's a good way to connect kind of like the usual stories of your family to Beverly's disappearance. So when Mary Shulman, Nettie's mother and Beverly's grandmother, passes away at 81 on April 19th, 1948, so a few months after her disappearance, the death notice includes this. Members of the family attribute Mrs. Shulman's death to her grief over the disappearance of her granddaughter, Beverly Sharpman, 17, of the same address. Beverly has not been heard from since she left the house on September 11th, 1947. Wow. I mean, and then there's the actual, like, the possibility that she did run away and then something happened to her. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're talking about people who who do run away, like, there are any number of possibilities. Like, you could have run away and you're just choosing not to contact your family Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Or you ran away and that has placed you in a situation of, like, precariousness, right? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, people do accidents and illnesses happen exactly so regardless so she she might have died of some other thing in this meantime not not in that short period between like her disappearance and her grandmother but i'm I'm saying in like all those years after her mom is putting this out there and she doesn't even know like if she's even Mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, and so when Beverly doesn't return when the news of her grandmother is posted, I think this moment is when Nettie and the rest of the family begins to realize that it's possible Beverly is not coming back. They had hoped for this news of the grandmother's death would be enough to bring her home, but this does, I believe, strengthen Nettie's mission to find her. So she really, like, leans in more to, like, this media campaign that she started. So she is really believing that she was, like, kidnapped at this point. Well... Is that what she... You know, there's... I think at this point, I think she has moved past that idea. And that's why the messages that she's posting in the the paper are directly to... At her. At her. Okay. Some of her media campaign actually does generate some leads. Possibly. So on May 7th, 1948, there's a news article about Beverly's disappearance and the fact that the Sharpmans have received a postcard mailed from Blue Ridge Summit, Pennsylvania, from a J. Edwards. It reads, Beverly Sharpman was working in Charleston, South Carolina on April 8th, 1948. I spoke to her and I noticed she was a northern girl and didn't belong in the South. She was living on West Street with a girl named Bobby Wilson. She may have left Charleston by this time. And do we have any information on Bobby Wilson? Well, Nettie, she immediately turns this postcard over to Sergeant Elmer Nusky at the Bureau of Missing Persons in Philadelphia. And he immediately contacts Charleston. This is like their first lead. Mm-hmm. But they are not able to locate Beverly there. And Nettie uses this news article, though, about this development in the case and starts offering a reward of $250. So about $3,200 in today's for information leading to her daughter's return. I'm not sure if she they ever located a Bobby Wilson or confirmed that there was someone by that name. Did it ever end up coming to anything? Yeah, it's hard in cases of missing people like this to really tell, I think, initially whether or not these kinds of communications are true or not. And so like this one is very detailed. It has specifics in it. But we kind of saw the same issue with Mary Shotwell Little, Mm -hmm. right? Like in her case, like these people were sending in messages with very detailed information about her that turned out to be just fake. Right. So it could be fake. But I I still think finding Bobby Wilson would be like the number one thing to do. I don't know if they tried that. The Charleston police like definitely check this out immediately Mm -hmm. and nothing came of it. On August 18th, when Beverly's been missing for 49 weeks... Nettie tries again. She uses her daughter's upcoming 18th birthday to push the story again. This is how I know she was born in August. Mm. The news articles from this time include a message from Nettie. She says, If you are alive and well, please give us the best birthday gift anyone can ask for. Let us know where you are. I promise to meet you or contact you anywhere you want me to in any part of the 48 states or outside the USA. If you are in any difficulty financially or otherwise, just say the word and Dan and I will come to your aid. And nothing came from that, I'm sure. No. And so Nettie uses this moment to increase the reward to $1,000 or about $12,500 in today's money. That represents, I believe, roughly a full year almost of their family's salary. Wow. I mean, I think you would, though, if your kid is missing. You'd give anything to have them back. And it would be frustrating to think that they're out there not wanting to come back. Yeah. And so by late August into September of 1948, so 
one year into her disappearance. Nettie shifts her focus to California as a possibility. She tells reporters that her neighbor is going to be spending a month in California, and while there, that neighbor promises to speak to police in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Nettie says that if they're unsuccessful in this, the neighbor reaching out, that she's just going to go herself. And though I don't have record of her traveling to California specifically, Nettie is not just holed up in Beverly's bedroom. She travels all over the Northeast and the Northern parts of the Midwest. Like she's been to Chicago and Detroit and Atlantic City herself, all looking for Beverly. And she's just picking these places randomly. Like she has no reason to think that she's at any of these particular places. There are sometimes leads that take her in a direction. Uh, she says at some point that it took them months to learn that Beverly purchased a ticket from Philadelphia to Chicago. Okay. So that seems like one of the strongest pieces of evidence that that's the direction she went in. But did she go to Chicago and go someplace else after it? Right. Who would know? And so... On March of 1949, her brother Bernard is getting ready to marry Ethel Schlesinger. And articles about the upcoming weddings, like those are pretty common at the time. And so there's one about Bernard and Ethel. And the Sherpmans again use this as a way to try to reach out to Beverly. Nettie says the only thing lacking for her happiness to be complete is having her daughter there or even knowledge of her whereabouts. So I, I feel like some of these are, are touching, but at the same time, some of them, like the grandmother and this, feel a little manipulative also. Yeah. So like if Beverly had some sort of reason to run away and then she's seeing these, it could just be like, it could agitate her too. Right. Like, I mean, like the level of guilt here is is pretty high. By that summer though, it's 1949, right? Summer of 1949, Nettie spends the bulk of her time in Atlantic City. A woman had told her that she'd seen Beverly on a bus going from Baltimore to Atlantic City in June and that she said she'd taken a summer job there. I mean, anything's possible at this point. Right. And so Nettie's just like combing the streets. And so in November, she moves back, Nettie does, to Baltimore, theorizing that by this point, Beverly would have returned to Baltimore after her summer job ended. She says that when she got off the train and she asked the ladies room matron at the station if they'd seen Beverly, she said she had three weeks ago. Okay. So I feel like Nettie at this point is almost driving herself a little crazy too. Yeah. I think there's some like straw grasping here. Yeah. Right. And Nettie ends up saying, I'm so tired. I've walked so many miles just looking, but I have to keep going until I find my girl. If she is alive, I would be satisfied if she would just contact me to tell me she's alive and well. And meanwhile, Beverly's like dad and brother, are they just kind of trying to live normal lives? You know, it's clear that the driving force behind this is Nettie. And I'm not saying that the other rest of the family didn't help. Right. Um, it's clear later that they do, but... Yeah. You have to have kind of like a balance there, right? Like, Yeah. So like Nettie is out there, you know, like literally walking streets, asking people, showing people her daughter's photo. And unless you're in that situation, you don't know how you're going to deal with it. I mean, I probably would be like Nettie. Mm -hmm. So I, but I know that it wouldn't be like a healthy thing for me or for anyone around me, but I probably would become slightly obsessed with getting her back, getting yeah. her back. And any of those little clues would probably be like fuel for that right because that's all she has to go on we have some advantages of living in the internet age where mm -hmm. we have some advantages of that but she's like out there like taking out these tiny like newspaper ads and like showing like strangers at the train station well i'm just hoping that her daughter picks up that right newspaper on that right day and yeah the odds of that don't seem very 
very likely. Yeah, and so in 1950, Nettie is enlisting the help of the Salvation Army. Perhaps like one of their lesser known services of the Salvation Army is this service, which was began in 1885, and it was known as the Family Tracing Service, or sometimes as the Missing Persons Service. Really? They, they still do it, yeah. I did not know about this. I know. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, their goal specifically is to trace missing family members and with the goal towards family reunification. That's very nice. Yeah. And so in 1950, this service had offices in New York, Atlanta, San Francisco, and Chicago. And Nettie had already been to New York City countless times looking for Beverly. So she started working with Captain Elsie Van Pelt, who ran the New York City office. Captain Van Pelt said that sometimes her work took only a matter of minutes. Sometimes all it took was looking at local directories or phone books or trade periodicals or newspapers just to find the person. Still, in 1950, she said their office was handling 1,591 cases. Almost half of them dealt with sailors. That is a lot, but I guess it does make sense when you're talking about possibility of like sailors going missing and stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, that's quite a few cases that their office was handling. But despite her other successes, Captain Van Pelt was unable to locate Beverly. In August of 1950, near Beverly's 20th birthday, Nettie's ad appears in the paper, and it sounds even more desperate. She posts, I want some word or sign you are alive. Please contact me in your own way. I'll meet you anytime, anywhere. I'll sell my home and belongings if necessary. I've got to find you. So like you were asking earlier, Nettie doesn't always go alone in her searches. Sometimes she's with her husband, Beverly's father, who would go with her if he could, or other family members. She travels to Washington, D.C., Elkton, Maryland, Trenton, New Jersey, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. In a news piece from August, though, Nettie says, I'm ill and I can't go on without her. From now until September 11th, I intend to do everything I can to find her with the aid of newspapers and the police. I intend to see President Truman and enlist the aid of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So she is making herself sick at this point. You know, I'm not sure, you know, what health issues she'd be facing, but like you can tell like the exhaustion. Right. That. I mean, it, it could just be health issues brought on from that much stress. So she still takes out ads, particularly near Beverly's birthday, but in 1952, there's a whole row of them from various family members wishing her a happy birthday and asking for her to contact them. And in 1952, you start to see what really seems to be one of the last pushes to find her, at least publicly. In 1941, Elmer Clifton had made these two films, I'll Sell My Life, which is a thriller mystery, and City of Missing Girls. City of Missing Girls is about women who go to a fictional crescent school for the fine arts that's really owned by a gangster who uses it as a front to traffic women into his clubs. Now, these were playing 11 years later in the theater because, well, like access to television. Right. But many of the ads in the Northwest included not just the showing times, but Beverly's name as a missing person along with the reward. So they're almost using like these movies about like trafficking and other situations to bring her story back up. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually interested. I didn't have time to look, but I'm I'm interested to see if like when these played as a double feature elsewhere between the time they were released and throughout the 1950s, if they also used it as a way to try to get these stories more notice of other missing persons. 
There are just a few more public leads that arise, like a postcard received August 21st, 1954, that's supposedly from Beverly and posted from Fairless Hills Falls Township in Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and one in 1955 from someone signed Bella, who says that Beverly is working at Hackney's Restaurant in Atlantic City and that she traveled to Florida to work the Marine Grill and that she was dating a chef. And do we think these are real? It's hard to say. You know, I think the possibility for them to be pranks are, is high, particularly because, you know, Beverly might not be seeing these ads in the paper, but other people are. Right, definitely. By 1966, Beverly's file is at least three inches thick with leads like this. And an article at the time says that though over a thousand teenagers go missing from Philadelphia each year, there are only roughly 50 still open cases at the end of each year, and Beverly's was one of them. And I mean, it's so hard to say, like, what could have happened to Beverly. It just seems like the possibilities are endless on, like, we don't know anything about her family life before that. We don't know if she was a runaway. We don't know um, if they're, like you were saying before, maybe maybe she was in a relationship with someone she shouldn't have been, like someone outside of their accepted people, like either female or someone that's not Jewish or someone much older. And then there's just other possibilities of things. I, like, I can't help but think like in those days, people even died of like the flu. She could have left and before she had a chance to get back in touch with her parents, something horrible could have happened. There's just so many possibilities of what happened to this woman to really know where she could have ended up. Yeah. You know, this story really became a story about Nettie, because like she's the voice that we hear most often when it comes to Beverly, we don't get to hear Beverly's side of the story, right? We just right. get this one telegram that she sends out. And if it's true that she got married, it's very clear that her family was unaware of who this person might have been, which indicates that like she was keeping this relationship secret for some reason. And so I think that there was probably a lot going on in Beverly's life that she wasn't sharing with her parents, even though her mother thought they were super close. And we don't know where she could have ended up or what could have happened. Right. And and I do feel horrible for Nettie, but at the same time, we really don't know what her reasons were. Like if she did try to disappear and stay, stay gone like that. We don't know if there was a reason for it. We we have no idea, like, anything from Beverly's point of view. Right. It's, it's Nettie's voice. And so, you know, in 1948, we're kind of one more quote from Nettie, which is, she says, I shall never give up hope of finding her, though. Her dad, her brother, and I want her to know that we love her and want her to come home where she belongs. We all believe that someday she'll write or come home. But she never did. And Nettie passed away in 1975, followed in 1981 by her husband Samuel. Bernard, Beverly's brother, passed away in 1995. If she is still alive today, Beverly would be 93. It's been 76 years since she walked out of her family's door, her suitcase in her hand. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, This Is What the Heart Sounds Like read by Susan Bennett. Susan Bennett is the original voice of Siri. She's also the voice of fortune teller Madame Francesca, Melissa, the Evil Queen, the Little Elf Star, the Ancient Tree Conifer, and many more. 
In addition to being a voice actress, she is a former backup singer for Roy Orbison and Burt Bacharach. To find out more about Susan, visit SusanCBennett.com. At a speed she doesn't recognize, the train leaves Philadelphia heading toward Chicago. Once on board, she'll know that it leads to someplace other. She'll have her suitcase tucked against her knees and cash rolled tight in her pocket. Outside the window, trees will dapple the ground ebony. Hits of sunlight will drown her vision red like a pricked finger. Before she leaves, she will try to say what this thing is that drives her to the station late that morning. In front of a mirror, with her skin pulled tight over her cheekbones, it will be the sound of the huntsman that sends her running. That man with a knife and a promise to bring back beauty. She'll love him, the stranger that smelled a forest and the heart he brought down to fill a lie. Those lies, those simple untruths about where he's been to hide that he found the quiet girl. On the train, she'll finally know what love makes of us. There will be a shadow lodged in her chest that stutters in time to the sound of metal on metal. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast, Ain't It Scary, with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.